brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 138. If you're unhappy about something, I want you to examine why. And if that's related to gender, maybe think about that more. Don't run from it. And at the end of the day, I just want more joy in the world. Diana Anderson is a non-binary queer writer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're the author of several books, including Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, and Problematic, How Toxic Callout Culture is Destroying Feminism. They hold a master's in English from Baylor University and a master's in women's studies from the University of Oxford in Oxford, England. And when they're not working on books, Diana is a grant writer and nonprofit development professional. They live with their two cats, Minerva and Tonks. Diana's newest book, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies, is out Today, you can go get it wherever you buy books, and it's an exploration of what it means to be non-binary in a world that genders everything down to the very words we use. Uh, In the book, they start off exploring the long history of non-binary people, and then they tease out where non-binary identities fit within the idea of transgender identity and explores what all that means within a cis-normative society. I am thrilled to have Diana on the show today. I wanted to have them on the show ever since their last book came out, so this is quite a treat. We are, of course, talking about this new book uh, and more about Diana's journey, and I'm so excited for y'all to learn from them in this episode. No announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Diana, hi! Welcome! Hi! I'm so glad to be here. I am thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining me. So to start, a question I ask everyone, uh, what are your identities and how has your faith helped form those identities? Yeah, I am non-binary queer. Right now, I consider myself sort of agnostic atheist, but I grew up evangelical. And so that is always going to be part of my identity and part of what formed and shaped me. So even though I have since sort of left that tradition, I spent a very long time in it. And now I sort of consider myself atheist, agnostic, Jewish adjacent, because I have so many friends who are Jewish that I just sort of end up involved in those discussions. And for me, the role that faith has played was in both in positive and negative ways in terms of how it first restricted me uh, in who I thought I could be, and then became this thing where I where I used it as a freeing platform to ask questions. And that's sort of where I'm at now, where it is a thing that, while no longer a regular part of my daily life, it's still something that I see as a force for good in the world because it does force people to ask questions and it gives them something to guide themselves in life. I mean, you talk 
a fair amount about that kind of restriction in your new book, which is out today. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm so excited <laughs> um, about it. <laughs> yeah, I am too. It's it's so good. Um, but I like I would love if you could like maybe put a little bit more language around like when you say like it it, it started with a lot of restriction and then what it like how it then opened up this space for questioning. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, growing up evangelical, evangelicalism, I was assigned female at birth, even though I identify as non-binary now, uh, pronouns they, them, and all that. And I grew up trying to figure out what it meant to be a girl, what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be female in this world. And evangelicalism is very much, we have the answers for you. You are this, this, and this. And it was often like, you are a housewife, you are going to be a helpmeet to your future husband. And being a queer person, that never really sat right with me, even though I, like, really, really tried hard to fit into that mold. So it was for a very long time this box of rules that I was trying to follow um, that sort of kept me in this specific role in this idea of what I thought womanhood was and what that meant to me. But then when I was older and got into actually studying theology. I was a theology major in college and then did a master's at Baylor University, where I did a lot of interdisciplinary stuff with the English department and the religion department. And in studying that, I discovered liberation theology, which really helped open up my baby feminist consciousness. I studied queer theory in literary theory, in a literary criticism class that I had to take uh, for my degree. And that, approaching that at first from a Christian perspective was really eye-opening for me because I saw that there were other ways of being and other ways of looking at the world that could still be grounded in faith. And that was a huge shift for me in terms of like, okay, I can find a way to make this work within my faith. So intellectually, it's always been part of that project for me of reconciling faith with who I am as a person and stuff. And so me walking away from that and moving away from that over the past couple of years has been much more interpersonal stuff rather than any sort of problems with the theology. Sure. I mean, would you be willing to share a little bit about what that has looked like, kind of walking away? Yeah, it's it was a sort of slowly and all, all at once thing. My brother is a chaplain at a hospital, and, and my entire family considers themselves uh, Christians and stuff. And so we've had lots of conversations over the years of what that specifically means. And for me, I didn't see that being helpful or useful to me in my in my in how I lived my life anymore it wasn't it was no longer a helpful framework especially since I felt such distance from the dominant strains of Christianity that exist and there are still parts of it that I that I very much like I'm very much not a black and white person as <laughs> I'm I'm non-binary in all things <laughs> and so while I reject like the dominionism and the and the Christian nationalism and stuff, there are still parts of liberatory uh, Christianity that I believe do good in the world, even though they're not for me. And a lot of that has been seeing how 
the very strict evangelical theology has turned loved ones into people who are very cruel when other people are uh, uh, cruel to people who are different from them. I have, <laughs> I don't speak to much of my extended family because of that. So that played a role very much, um, which is a very common queer experience. Right. As I'm sure your listeners know. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think that is, is so true that those moments when we start to lean into difference and not just lean into, but embrace and yeah. push into difference and the alienation that then kind of comes with it, especially when you're, you have been in a world of faith, um, it can be quite violent. Yeah. And the reaction of people when you come out and start living as your authentic self can be very harsh but I, I'm very lucky in that many of my friends and my chosen family are, they're still Christian, they're still people of faith. Um, I'm friends with a lot of uh, queer pastors and a lot of queer Jewish people. Uh, so I get to be surrounded in those conversations, which is still very enriching. And I really, um, like, people of faith absolutely have things to say to the world. And I think we do a disservice when we dismiss them as just, oh, religion is bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, your, your new book, <laughs> the, the yeah. subtitle, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. Um, it, it, I mean, in some ways, it kind of chronicles your journey of um, embracing being non-binary and kind of what it took for you to figure that out about yourself. Um, but you also ground so much of it in theory and in history, which I think is my nerd self. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Loved that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I would love to hear maybe first, like some of your, your journey towards discovering that you're non-binary. Um, and, and then maybe we can get into some of the theory that you, you're grounding so much of this in because it, it feels deeply important to, um, unpack some of that. Yeah. I sort of realized that I'm non-binary like a few years ago. And before that I'd had flashes of moments where like I met a non-binary person in my program at Oxford and was like, oh, I wish I could do that. And <laughs> which is, is one of those things where like, I look back on it and go, dude, <laughs> you can do that. Like, there was nothing holding, like, what what was holding you back then? Because it, it took me a while to realize that cisgender people don't have thoughts like that. They don't sit, they tend not to sit around and go, I wonder what it would be like to be non-binary. That sounds fun. Like, that sounds like it fits um, and stuff. But, but, but no, I can't. I'm cis. Uh, in the trans community, we refer to that as being an egg, where you say, like, very trans things and, like, indications that you are probably trans in some way, uh, but you don't realize it yourself. You're blind to that part of yourself for whatever reason. And so what finally broke it for me was my best friend is a trans woman and we talk about trans stuff all the time. And we were talking about like the lines between non-binary trans and what it means to be 
non-binary and stuff. And I found myself wanting to say we when I was talking about the non-binary community. And that was in 2020 during the pandemic. So I had a lot of time to sit around and I was like, that is, I should listen to that impulse. And so I started trying it out. I came out to a couple of close friends, couching it as I've been having gender feelings, um, <laughs> which was the best way I could put it at that time. But like the first time someone called me them or used they in reference to me felt so correct that I realized, oh, I am that. Like that is like, and sometimes that's just how it works. Like it, when you're, when you are figuring out a new identity, you have to sort of practice it a little bit and lean into it to see if it feels right for you. And that's not just like, feels right on an emotional level. Like it made me happy, but it was also like, this feels correct. Like putting on a shirt that fits perfectly. And that is what finally made me realize it. And like before then I had considered myself a woman, but like a non-traditional one. I tried to fit into that role of like, oh, I'm just not like other women. I'm just a non-traditional presentation of womanhood. I reject stereotypes, whatever. And I think that gets confused for a lot of people because they're like, well, there's no one way of being a woman. But like, for me, it was, I could not describe for myself what womanhood would mean. I couldn't identify those parts of myself that, that said woman. And I realized uh, after a while that the, that the reason I couldn't do that was because I'm not one. I, I think that's so interesting because you, I mean, you have been seeped, as, as you've talked about, in like queer theory, <laughs> feminist theory, um, around a lot of trans and non-binary people for a very long time. Like this is not a new space for you. And I, I think what's interesting about your story is, like, this still happened. I mean, this was fairly recent for you to discover this. And, and I think I, I talk with a lot of queer people often who feel a lot of shame about discovering things about themselves, like, later on in life, feeling like, oh, I should have known this. Or if this is valid, I should have been able to figure it out, you know, when I was, like, 12. Um, and that anything we figure out in our 30s, 40s and on, like, isn't, isn't valid, isn't true. Um, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, like, what it was like to navigate that even after being in these spaces for so long. Yeah, I have, I have been in the lexicon of the, of the specific Christian community. I've been affirming of queer identities and I've been out as queer since... 2013, end of 2013 is when I came out publicly as a queer person and stuff. And so in a lot of ways, coming out as non-binary felt like a natural conclusion, natural progression of that. Well, progression is maybe not the right word. But for me, as, as I talk about in the book, a lot of understanding ourselves as queer or trans or whatever comes from having the language for it. A lot of it is we know that we're different in some way, but we didn't know how. We didn't have the words to express it. I am 36 years old. I came out at 34. No. Yeah, 34. I had to do the math. I came out as non-binary at 34, had come out as queer at 27. So I've always been a sort of late bloomer, and there's a 
resentment that comes with that because you're like, I could have been living my 20s out and queer and that would have been so different. But also I am now in a position where things are, I have the language for me and I have the ability to show others that you can come out at any age. Because for so many in my generation, um, I grew up in the 1990s, a, like HIV was name, was discovered and named the year I was born. So I was born in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So that was like the conception of the queer community that existed for my parents and for so many in my community. And by the time I hit puberty, I was in high school when bi-curious was a thing. And so I grew up in this very homophobic, very transphobic environment. So I don't, I understand the Diana that didn't have the words to explain themselves. I understand that past self of me. And I've learned to have sympathy for myself and empathy for, for myself for not knowing and not having the words to express myself. And that doesn't make my coming out now any less valid. It makes pieces of my life fall into place a lot more. You, you talk about how discovering queer theory, which just blows my mind that you discovered that at Baylor. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Dr. Federer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I just have to tell about that. It was yeah. a fluke of the alphabet of how he was assigning things mm. because he assigned them backwards starting from Z uh, because we all had to do a presentation and queer theory happened to fall during the week that I was assigned. Um, yes. And I tried to get switched to another week and he refused. So <laughs> <laughs> so you're like forced into it. <laughs> yeah. And then I read like Adrian Rich and Judith Butler and was like, holy crap. Mm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I mean, t t tell me about what you kind of started to learn reading, I mean, the, the kind of rich theory <laughs> that has been around for a while, at least, um, that, that kind of led you into discovering this language eventually. Having a, having a master's in women's studies and having done, I've been working in this area for over a decade now, and the thing that I found is that theory is very often descriptive, not proscriptive or prescriptive. It is not there to say how things should be. Although in some areas that is, it does turn into advocacy of this of, is what a truly accepting queer world looks like, but it more exists to try and explain and understand us as we exist now and what that means within this world that we've constructed. And that means looking at uh, things like compulsory heterosexuality, where our society is entirely structured around the goal of straightness, of having a straight marriage and creating straight babies, um, and the role of whiteness that it plays in that. Because that's a very American thing. It's the, when you picture the family with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. It's always the, the white family with the mom and dad. And so theory is about deconstructing those images 
It's about deconstructing how we talk about ourselves and looking at how we learn about gender and what gender is um, and what role gender plays in society. And once it's done deconstructing, it tries to reconstruct a world in which gender is not an oppressive category, but merely a morally neutral one in which varied expressions can play and where people are equal and what that would look like if we had this radical acceptance of LGBTness and radical equality uh, within that. the example of like Ikea furniture when, when talking about gender <laughs> at one <laughs> point in your book and I'm trying to remember which theories you were describing was it yeah. Butler oh yeah yeah that was uh Bulgerlard who does the concept of the hyper real yes yeah could, I mean, could you I, th I found that so fascinating like copies upon copies of copies of things and how I, I think if I'm, I understood it like kind of it turns into performance instead of the actual thing. Like, could you cl clarify that and talk about that a little bit? Yeah. He's a French philosopher, Baudrillard, who was working in the 80s and 90s, wrote a very famous piece on the Gulf War uh, about how the Gulf War isn't happening, which was sort of a sarcastic thing. But the idea is that because we experience the world through replicated images for example, with the Gulf War, that was the first war that happened on TV for Americans. We saw images live from those countries, but it was distant from us. It was the first time that we had that view of war, but it was in a format that we are inclined to feel distance from. And so he proposed that that was sort of a it, for Americans, that turned war into the simulacra of the real thing. It's this imitation. It's a facsimile. It's not the actual real thing happening. It distances us from that reality. And so in a world of mass production, in a world of Amazon and the internet, where things are infinitely reduplicated and re rebuilt and re-repeated, uh, like an Ikea furniture where you, you never see the original piece that the designer built, but you have all these copies of it that are sitting in flat pack boxes. That is sort of the, the hyper real. It's not a reality, but it's a facsimile of that. And that's getting deep into the weeds of philosophy. But one of the best pop culture examples we have of this is the Matrix, where everybody is living within the Matrix in this world that is a semblance of reality. And for the people in it, it is reality. But there is this other world. And Morpheus explicitly references it in, in the, the Wachowski sisters were very inspired by uh, Baudrillard. But he says the uh, welcome to the desert of the real. So it's this idea that reality is something created for us. It is... All we are seeing is simulations of actual originality, which is kind of the way gender works. There is no real gender to which we are actually pointing, but we are 
engaging in these simulations of gender through our repeated performances of what we decide to present as every day. So women are engaged, cisgender women are engaged in a repeated performance of femininity, depending on whatever femininity has been deemed to be within that culture. And they're creating this version of reality, basically, that is gender, but is not uh, actually gender, because gender isn't a thing we have access to anymore. So it's this idea of sort of everyone is engaged in the mass production of gender and creating this sort of hyper-real um, idea of what gender is. This, so then you kind of then walk into like the, I mean, would it be fair to say like the undoing of that? Yeah. Many philosophers who subscribe to Bolriard would subscribe to this hyper-realist idea, would say that we are in the era of the hyper-real right now, which I agree with, and the thir- and the newest Matrix movie really comments on. <laughs> and a lot of how we experience the world now comes down to how we choose to present ourselves, how we choose to engage with what is our reality, what is our lived experience. And that involves seeking something authentic to the self, which is what gender really is and what the project of being trans and non-binary is, is trying to find a way to translate your inner thoughts into this weird reality in which gender is a confusing mess. Well, and I think that like that ties, and, and you do tie it so far mm-hmm. into that, that reality of like, how for a lot of cis people, like gender is just taken for granted. Like there yes. isn't, there isn't a questioning of why do I feel like a man? <laughs> what yeah. is a man? Like, like these, these questions that a lot of trans and non-binary people just almost like naturally start asking. <laughs> like cis people don't interrogate that as much. And so it it is uh, it kind of taken for granted. And, and I think some of the work that you're doing is saying like, is asking cis people to question those things too, to yeah. find what is actually authentic about the gender that you prescribe to. Yeah. And I don't know how much your audience would know about TERFs, but I think they're a really good example of this. I think we're probably pretty familiar, but give us a crash course just in case. Yeah. TERFs are trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They are from a sort of side development of second wave feminism starting in the early 80s with Janice Raymond's The Transsexual Empire. And her argument is that gender is fixed within the body. Therefore, trans women are creating a facsimile of womanhood that is a mockery of it. It has taken on a new political significance in the last, since about 2014, um, started mainly over in the UK with the reforming of the Gender Recognition Act, trying to move away from a trans medicalist idea of like, you have to have all these surgeries and all these medical treatments in order to be considered really trans to like, you can just self-identify as trans uh, to be considered trans, which is how the trans community views ourselves. You don't have to medically transition. And there are trans people who cannot medically transition for whatever reason, for medical history, they can't go, they can't have surgery or they can't do those sorts of things. They can't take the, the hormones and the trans community is very much that 
identity is as valid as somebody who has gone through all the the things. Because what matters is that you are who you say you are, and we trust you in that. And TERFs object to that because they believe that it is important to have specific demarcations between man and woman, because ultimately it boils down to men are threats and women are victims. And so to circle back around and answer the question, the ways in which cisgender TERFs imagine their womanhood is very grim. They always characterize womanhood as that of pain, of being oppressed, where womanhood is defined by being this underclass uh, within the system in which we live. And that has always struck me as really sad that they have no, like there's nothing about being a woman to them that said that that is joyful, nothing that makes them happy about being a woman. And they are particularly having experienced this myself. They get really mad at people who are assigned female at birth who then transition because they feel like we're opting out of womanhood, uh, which I devoted a chapter to basically of my relationship to womanhood because I never felt like one. It was a weird foreign thing to me. So I'm not opting out of a thing I couldn't, I would, I never was. And so when talking to cis people, I try to get them to see those things within their gender that make them feel good and at home in their body and at home in who they are. And that's a specific challenge that I try to raise to cis people in specific of like, what makes you feel most manly? What makes you feel most womanly? What are those things that bring you joy in your gender? And if you can't come up with anything, maybe examine that. <laughs> maybe talk to talk to a gender therapist or something about that. It doesn't mean you're trans. It just means that you might need to do a little bit of exploration about your gender. And you may land at the idea that you're cis. But I would just love if cis people would do some of the thinking that literally every trans person has done. Well, I think what you're inviting us to, it feels really liberative in a lot of ways. Like like the sense of stepping outside of of kind of the norm and actually stepping into <laughs> to, to what is real, to, to what actually feels good about being ourselves. Um, and... I mean, that's work that you have done. It's really hard work, um, but it's work that is worth doing. Yeah. At the end of the day, I want people to be happy in who they are, whatever that label is. And I want to make sure that you are also like, if you're unhappy about something, I want you to examine why. And if that's related to gender, maybe think about that more. Don't run from it. And like, at the end of the day, I just want more joy in the world. Mm -hmm. for, for, for people who are like, how do you even think about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of different ways to approach it. Um, and I lean back to my brother's family, which is he is, he's married, he, he's straight, cis, uh, married, has two girls, at least as far as we know, they're girls. And I haven't seen any indication otherwise. 
and I think about how joyfully they experience their femininity and think about how they approach that in the world, being totally comfortable in that. Obviously, I don't know their inner minds, and eventually if they articulate something different to me, that'd be great. Like, I, I would accept that, no problem. But like whenever I, I go for a visit, the youngest niece who is six shows me what new dresses she has and shows me her her new earrings and princess makeup. Uh, she got a, a kid's makeup kit for Christmas and just opened it up and started playing with it. And you don't have to be a girl to to do those sorts of things. Like that is not like I'm not saying like people who engage in that stereotypical behavior are are girls. Um, and that's not what makes somebody a girl, but that is a part of of the lexicon that we have for talking about femininity. And so she enjoys these stereotypical feminine things and delights in them as a girl. And it's awesome to see that joy in her life. And so when talking to cis adults, I try to get them to think about what what makes them feel that joy in their gender? When do they feel most affirmed in whatever femininity or masculinity that they have? What makes them, you know, want to sing the Shania Twain song? Uh, <laughs> Man, yes. I feel like a woman. Um, and, and I've had that conversation with my sister-in-law where I was talking about how much joy it brings me to be called they and them and to be, and to present as like this confusing mess of where people look at me and go, what are you? Like that brings me immense joy as a non-binary person. Cause like most people on the internet, I'd rather not be perceived. Um, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my sister-in-law was like, was like, Oh, so like, for me, if I'm not perceived as a woman, that gives me anxiety. I feel at my best when I am presenting my femininity and I and I feel like I am do like I, I am presenting my best womanhood to the world. Like whether that's and she's not like a particularly girly person. She wears oh, I rarely see her in dresses and stuff, but she still has like this feminine sense that's hard to define. But like for her, having that conversation made it click into place of how, oh, there are ways to have joy about gender and to see seeing it affirmed is just as important as anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like things are clicking for me, even as you're talking, which <laughs> I didn't expect. <laughs> Because I'm like, I have thought about oh, this a lot, but like, even as you're talking, like other stories are coming to mind that I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I love, I love that. Um, it, it, like, I think it just shows the importance of like thinking about these things and interrogating these things can be a pathway into more joy, like more sense of belonging. Yeah. For me, with my own personal joy, I, tomorrow is, the day that we're recording this, tomorrow the 8th, is my three-month anniversary since top surgery. And I've struggled with an anxiety disorder my entire life. Um, I've been on meds for, for a decade now. 
and I have as needed meds that I that I usually take when I'm doing something that's nerve wracking or something that I know is going to bring up anxiety. Uh, but since top surgery, I have felt so comfortable in my own body that my prescription anti-anxiety meds just sit on the counter. I have not taken them. Wow. Uh, and so I want like it's it's this amazing like how that has transformed how I interact with the world and being my authentic self, being who I am has brought me so much joy that I want other people to access that <laughs> just within themselves, just figuring out who their authentic self is. Cause I think that's a huge, a huge boon. I, I mean, as we're talking about joy, I, I, I can't help but also think about just like some of the reality of the world that we are living in <laughs> and the yeah. reality of like what it means to find joy within ourselves, but then how that joy can also then open us up to violence, yeah. to attack, to the reality mm -hmm. that like our rights are being taken away. Um, trans rights are being taken away even more than mm -hmm. just like gay rights. Like we're living in a scary time. Like how are you, and this is a really big question, but like <laughs> yeah. how are you navigating some of those realities as like what stepping into something joyful that also then opens up like profound vulnerability. Yeah, that's one of the scary things for me now that I have had uh, top surgery, which I realize might need to be defined for your listeners. I, I yeeted my teats. I got rid yes. of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now I present as a much more androgynous person. I have quote unquote, a dad bod. Now I, I, I read much more masculine than I used to. And that has made me much more visibly trans than I was before. I used to be able to like, just sort of hide in being perceived as a she, but now I can't. And that scares me a bit. I haven't had any real encounters yet. I did have, um, I went swimming with my nieces and there were some other people who stared a bit uh, because I had my shirt off and my top surgery scars were visible, but they didn't say anything. And so it's still this like, it's this weird feeling of contradiction where like I'm having this immense joy at being who I am, but other people are reacting to that in new ways. But I think part of it hasn't bothered me too much because that joy and knowledge of being my authentic self has also instilled in me this strength to know who I am and to be confident in that. And so I know that like the person who stares at me when I take my shirt off at the pool can't take away what I have in terms of who I am. And like, it hurts to see so many people turn the trans community into a scapegoat for all of societal's ills. It worries me immensely. But for me, having that joy in who I am has made me stronger and more able to fight for my community. It allows me to approach the discussion from a point of strength because I know who I am. I know where I fit into this thing that we call gender. And I know exactly what my rights are as that person, as a human being. 
and what to fight for, articulating the discussion not as abortion rights, but as bodily autonomy for everyone, which is important for cis men, it's important for cis women, it's important for children, it's important for the trans and non-binary community, it's important for everybody. And so knowing these things has, has positioned me almost better to approach it from a point of strength and to be more willing to fight. I mean, it feels like it gives you like actual ground to stand on. Yes. Yeah. It's a very stabilizing thing because now I have, I, I also have a sense of what I'm fighting for because I know how important it is to have access to that bodily autonomy to be able to direct your care. Yeah, because there's a, there's a huge difference between kind of moving from a position of like, this is who I am versus like, this is who I'm pretending to be. Yes. <laughs> really big difference there. Yeah. And when you're pretending to be a straight woman, when you're really a non-binary queer, um, <laughs> it makes right. a load of difference because you don't, because like, now I don't feel like I'm wearing a mask uh, of a person I'm not uh, when I when I do these when I get involved in these issues. For listeners who are um, kind of questioning whether they might be non-binary, um, I mean, certainly I would say like pick up your book because yes. <laughs> it it is truly kind of you walk people through that process alongside so much more. Um, but like, maybe just like a little bit of what, what would you say to them as they're like, maybe beginning that journey? Lean into it. Don't be afraid to question those things about yourself. You may arrive back at the conclusion that you're cis. I have friends who have done that, who have been like, I'm going to try out this non-binary thing. Uh, and who landed back at, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm a woman, you know, I'm a man. Or you might open up a brand new world. And you never know until you start exploring those cell, those things. I, I love that permission. Like, it's almost like, I mean, tell me if this feels true, but like, it's like permission to play with it. Yeah. Yeah. Playfulness is such an important part of gender for me, of being able to, like, one of my favorite things that I've discovered now that, like, I have this new body is wearing loud button-ups. Um, yes. <laughs> and yes. that feels like playing with gender in a way that I, I didn't have access to before. And so, and so being able to have a sense of play and not take it, like, take it seriously because it is your sense of self, but also don't let it scare you if things start going in a direction you maybe weren't prepared for. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like that's one of your like a, a point that you make is like I, I, sometimes like I feel like we we treat these things like so gravely, and certainly there's a realm where they need to be treated gravely because because they are. But like that that sense of being able to play, of not taking it seriously, yeah, of giving yourself permission to explore and say like maybe this is true, maybe it's not true. It's not a um, decision that has to be made in perpetuity <laughs> yeah exactly when i first came out i came out as bisexual and then as i learned more about myself i was like oh i am more generically queer and that it was okay i'm a lesbian like that is i i'm gay and then the then like once i had that settled i started having like actually examining the gender stuff and so now i'm back to non-binary queer 
and stuff, and that's where I feel most comfortable. Um, and it's like, it's been a decade for me to figure that all out about myself. And that's okay. I, I've enjoyed the journey as much as I have enjoyed the place where I've landed. <laughs> I've enjoyed being in transit, as you might say. Yes, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite way for people to find your work? Uh, Twitter is the best place to find me. Diana E. Anderson, and that's Diana with two N's. Um, and yeah, if you search for me on there, I'll pop up there. And that's my branding everywhere. And you can find my book at hopefully your local independent bookstore. If they don't have it, ask them to order it. Or if you're outside the U.S., then Book Depository is the place to find it. Yes, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been lovely. Yes, it's been such fun. <laughs> Be sure to go grab a copy of Diana's new book, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies, available wherever you buy books. They're on Twitter, at Diana E. Anderson. That's Diana, D-I-A-N-N-A, E. Anderson. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram, at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. And until next time, y'all, bye!